Good morning, everyone. I'm Josh, if I haven't met you yet. It's good to have you all here worshiping with us. If you're online, watching, worshiping, welcome as well. So as Ben mentioned, we're in um, a series called The Benefit of Doubt, where we are are talking about uh, faith and life and and the struggles or uh, uh, doubts that we have about about our faith. So this is is important to us um, because as a... As a church, this is what makes us unique, uh, not, not better, just, just kind of different from other churches. Is that we really want to be a place where we cultivate an environment where we can ask hard questions about life and faith. Um, maybe things that, that you might not feel as free or as welcome to express. In other faith communities, we, we really want to go uh, to the heart of it, um, to, to see people know Jesus, be welcome to take a step towards Jesus. And uh, we, uh, uh, we're a place where we feel like no one really fits perfectly, but everyone is welcome to belong here together. That's what Mosaic Church is. And so the benefit of doubt uh, is a series to say, hey, you know, you, you may not get all your questions answered. I certainly don't have all the answers, but you're welcome to be here. And we can walk together on that journey of faith and life and maybe explore those things uh, together. So I do, I want to say that um, you are appreciated, Mosaic Church. I, I so appreciate you. You could be anywhere in the world doing anything other than being here this morning, uh, talking about life and faith and doubts, and you've chosen to be here. Um, it's, a, it's an expression that, that we're figuring out and finding out together that no one is able to do life on their own. And so the choice to be here, um, because what, you know, and I've heard church uh, referred to, particularly in the West, as uh, a Coldplay concert with a TED Talk. And that's the summation <laughs> of what we have to offer as Christians to the world. And it's like, oh my God, please give us more, like, I like TED Talks. I like Coldplay. It's, it's, those are great. But like, please, let us be a place that cultivates more than that. And us gathering together, being here regularly, singing together, opening scripture together is a proclamation that I can't do this on my own. And I actually need other people. I need people outside of myself to pour into me and to be here. So some of you were here as early as 8 o'clock in the morning getting ready to host and to be here so that people could connect and take a step towards Jesus. And I just want to say you're appreciated. And I so, I so love this community and what God is doing here. And it's because of you all. It's because of you. And so thank you. Let's, let's keep doing this together. Um, today, I want to talk about it, what could be one of the most uh, difficult aspects of doubt in, in the faith journey. And that's the silence of God and unanswered prayer. It's the excruciating pain of waiting for an answer and maybe not really ever fully hearing the answer to your question. That's painful. It's excruciating. It's, it's, uh, it's all too common for us, though. And so, like I said, I, I don't know that I have all the answers. Uh, uh, people of God have been trying to answer the question of, of doubt and God's supposed silence and her, his perceived distance all throughout our history. We'll touch on some of the answers here today, but it's not exhaustive. 
And oftentimes what we need isn't necessarily all the answers to our questions, but we need, we need to know, hey, this is normal. What you're going through is not unique, and there are people to walk with you, and God may be closer than you really realize. So I remember one of the first times for me uh, going through uh, the silence of God. It, it happened in, in 2009. Sarah and I were married for about a year, so we had all of the marriage stuff figured out by that time. And uh, we were living in this uh, two-bedroom apartment, um, actually a little bit kind of down the way here. And uh, I had left my church, transitioned out of some, some volunteer leadership that I was doing there, leading young adults, uh, because we wanted to obviously go to church together. And so I had been going to her church uh, for that past year. And I didn't grow up in the church. I, I came to faith in Jesus when I was 23. And um, I, uh, so I didn't, I didn't have a lot of the church baggage that, that you get from upbringing and, and, and having faith in, in your kiddo years in the church. But I also didn't know some of the decorum of, of ha- not having grown up in that environment. So I asked a lot of hard questions of like, why do we do it like this? And, and I don't know if you know this, but in some church environments, questions like that aren't actually welcomed. Like when you ask the pastor, I think there's a better way to do that. Why do you do it that way? Um, and you know, you, you say it in all the humility that a 28 year old has that doesn't uh, 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 always go off well. So, um, we, <laughs> We, we were asked to consider fellowship elsewhere, actually, over, uh, uh, in a large part because I just didn't, I just didn't do all the things that I was asked to do. I often ask, like, why do we do it that way? Um, so in the summer of 2009, we found ourselves, like, I, I had been a Christian, uh, for seven years at that point, seven-ish years at that point, and found myself, like, with the left foot of fellowship, it's called, and, um, Wondering, like, wh- what is going on? And, and in that same, like, short season, it's as if the God, the God's presence had lifted. And I, I came to faith in a charismatic expression. So I was used to pressing into God's presence, uh, really having a hunger for the manifest presence of God. And it's like, it, it's like a, a, a close friend hung up on me. And I was like, what happened? I, people had expressed um, support for me being called to ministry, and so I was exploring that. Um, I didn't grow up in church, like I said, so I thought pastors wore three-piece suits and had bad haircuts, and I just was not, I just thought the job was super boring, um, and I was like, I'm more of a t-shirt and jeans kind of guy. I just don't see myself being a pastor. So I sat, I literally laid on the couch for the summer. I went to work, you know, did married things, traveled a little bit, but really like do I have a call to ministry? Because this church was really kind of antagonistic towards any kind of idea about that. Where should we go to church? Where do we, where, where do we even belong in this city anymore? Our support system had kind of evaporated. And so we had a lot of questions and a lot of like, I don't know where to go. Um, and I don't know who to turn to. And I, I came out of a lifestyle of partying, uh, going to the bars, drinking. I knew that did not go anywhere fruitful. So I was not tempted by sin. It was literally like all the desire that I had for God was gone. And God's presence was gone. And all, all the times where I had had answers to prayer, that was over. 
What that's known as uh, in Christian tradition is the dark night of the soul. That was my inauguration into that. Now, I knew about that. I had read books about the dark night of the soul. I had read uh, books and listened to podcasts on the silencing of God's voice in someone's life. I was not prepared, though, to actually experience that. It, it threw me off. I felt like I lost my faith. Like I had zero desire. If you know me, I'm, I'm an avid reader. I listen to podcasts. I, I, I will take, you know, courses and classes and have, have consulting, you know, forums uh, that, I, that I enter into to get, get better and, and wiser and just learn. And that was done. It was over. I watched TV, like unending TV that summer. I was so bored. It looked like depression. But I didn't feel depressed. I just felt empty. And then at the end of the summer, the end of summer 2009, something shifted again, and it totally lifted. It's like God picked the phone back up, and we we picked up where we had left off. And yet I didn't hear a voice that said, this is the lesson. This is why. Because you go through the checklist. I don't know if you know this. There's a checklist. You, You blame God. What's wrong with God? Why is he doing this to me? And then you go uh, to the next check, like, okay, God's, God's God. It's my fault. It's my fault. Why did, where did I sin? Did, should I not have left that church that invited me to leave? Um, where did I screw up? Do I need to go back and apologize for something that I did? Was there a relational harm? Is there unforgiveness in me? You go through this checklist. Like I said, I'm charismatic, so you go through a time of, like, binding and loosing things. You like start casting spirits out of stuff, like the, the spirit of deafness and dumbness and dullness, and that didn't work because you, if God's sitting behind it, you can't cast Jesus out in the name of Jesus. It doesn't work like that. So I went through the whole checklist of like, I should bind it. No, I should surrender to it. Like, what? I'm going crazy. And then, boom, it lifted. No lesson, no book deal, no podcast series, no influencer deal to, 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 I had nothing. The only thing I could walk away from, the only thing I could walk away from understanding was that it takes God to want God at all. It takes God to love God. It's, it's our response in love to God is first initiated by his grace, his empowering grace that welcomes us. That's all I had. That seems pretty, I don't know, minor, to put someone 12 weeks through the ringer to get like, hey, it, it, all this life, everything you have, your desire for me, even wanting to read a book, that's all because of me. It's all because of grace. Like, thank you, God. You could have told me that. But the thing is, he couldn't. He couldn't just tell me. He wanted me to experience what it was like without desire for him. I, I believe I was still saved. My, my salvation was not in question. It was just like, why the distance, God? You, you may have experienced that in your own life where you've sat through a message like this. You've heard about the silence of God. We've talked a little bit about the dark night of the soul, but nothing prepared you for that season. Your, your friend died or your son ran away or the marriage just didn't quite make it or you know, I'm in my 40s now. When you're in your 40s, it's not so much about what you want your life to look like, but embracing what, you, uh, what your life has become like. It's called the midlife crisis for a reason. 
You've been through that. People told you about that, but no one could actually prepare you for not what you want to be when you grow up, but you're grown and this is who you are. Sorry. All of those things. What does that look like for you? What is your dark night experience? What has that been like? What is the distance that you've experienced and perceived from God been like? What have you been tempted to do? What have you tried? What have you bound and loosed in desperation to get something to change? And again, I don't have an exhaustive list of what this looks like for everyone, but so often what we need is to know this is normal. This is normal life. And I can't promise that it's going to get better in the ways that you want it to. But what I can offer is a community of people who have been there, who are there, and who understand what it's like, and who are willing to walk with you through it. And more than that, I think we need to know that, like, Jesus experienced something like this, too. This isn't just us. Like, like part of the question that we need answered is, is God mad at me? Did I screw up? Or is God just having some kind of sycophantic fun with me where I'm on a string and he's dangling me? Like we have to work through hard questions of why is my life like this right now? And we need, need to know that Jesus had his own distancing experience from God. And he had his own unanswered prayers that he experienced. And I'm so glad we have the examples of not just other biblical characters, but Jesus himself in the scripture to look at what it's like and understand for us that God has been through the same thing that we've gone through or that we're going through. So let's, let's open up, uh, turn to Matthew 26, or you can look at it on the screen here. When we read scripture, we realize Jesus can relate to us. He knows what it's like. And he went first before us. And actually, when you look at the life of Jesus, his life was bookended by trials. His ministry started with wilderness temptations. The devil came to him to tempt him. And at the very end of his life, he was tempted to deny God. He was tempted even and, and tried by his own prayers that went unanswered. We see this in Matthew 26. In verse 36, when Jesus, uh, then Jesus went to, with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. So this is the night that he was arrested, the night before he was crucified. He, he took his disciples, his followers, to a garden uh, to pray. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. He says, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish redemption, can we do that? And he prayed this three times. This wasn't a, a momentary like, like, like doubt or, or I want to do my own thing. This, this was something that settled heavy on his soul. And he prayed multiple times for his preference. I would rather not die. I would rather not drink this cup. I would rather not come under the weight of sin. But nevertheless, he pushed through. He prayed through. And he landed in a place of surrender. Nevertheless, Father, your will be done as you want it to be done. I surrender to that. I agree that your will is good and perfect and true, just like you are. And let's do that together. Jesus asked for this other way to uh, to accomplish salvation so he could welcome sinners back into God's family. And it wasn't just that this this anguish that he was going through. He was experiencing this loneliness. Sure, he was surrounded by friends and he was connected to the Father, but only Jesus was having this experience. His friends fell asleep. The the first person, the Father, uh, the first person of the Trinity wasn't the one in flesh, uh, uh, God made flesh. It was Jesus having this experience of deep human emotion, deep grief, anguish, and pain, and he was the only one He was the only one going through that. No one else even could relate. We've had our own times of anguish, haven't we? Where there's times of doubt, there's times of distance, our support group has been cut off, or maybe they left or betrayed or abandoned us, whatever it is. And we felt all alone, like no one else gets what I'm going through. And I want you to know, Jesus understands exactly what that's like. Even understand what it's like to have a bunch of Job's friends come along and, and like, explain. Like, you think mansplaining is bad? It's when you Godsplain to other people. That's really bad. Like, God's like this, and it's your fault. Or maybe you should just, you know, curse God and, and die and, and get on with it. Like, there's no such feeling as being that alone and going through, like holding on to hope as much as you can, and no one else getting what you're going through, and even God feels like he hung up the phone on you. But Jesus knows exactly what that's like. He's had that very experience of wanting to give up, everything in the world telling him it's going to be better and easier and make more sense if he does, and yet... And yet, he still takes that next step of clinging to God's will, even when he can't sense if it's still God's will. He just surrenders, and he trusts. So what we need, what we need is to know there's a God who's bigger than our problems. But when we understand there's a God who's bigger than our problems, and we start putting our problems in his hands, we give him leadership of our life, And there's something that rears up in us that goes, I wouldn't do it that way if I were you, God. I know you're bigger than my problems. I need something outside of me to solve my problems. But could you just do it my way for once, please? 
because things would be a lot better. So we have this circular way of thinking about surrendering to God and giving over our life and giving over our problems and then critiquing God because he doesn't do it exactly the same way that we would do it. That is the human condition. And we understand each other when we say that, don't we? That's exactly what it's like to surrender and then like take back or surrender and tell yourself and God, I I gave 100% to you, God, but you're keeping like 5%. It's the 5% of like, I'm going to hang on to that because I know best. And what got us into the mess in the first place often is thinking that we know best. Jesus understands what it's like to experience distance and to experience unanswered prayer. People throughout history have tried to make sense of unanswered prayer and God's silence in the face of human misery and suffering. Some have concluded that God must not be all-powerful because they think he would certainly intervene if he could. Others have doubted his goodness, saying that he must not actually care all that much about people, and that's why he doesn't intervene. And another option, another opinion, says that human suffering in this world is ultimately a mystery— and beyond comprehension, and therefore we should give up all hope of praying to see God intervene and make a difference. And as a Christian, I find all three of those options unsatisfying. And I want to acknowledge a fourth. The fact that the God of the universe, in the face of human misery and suffering, gave up his own comfort, set aside his omnipotence, and endured the suffering in order to accomplish redemption. He came as the greatest expression of love and solidarity in the human experience. Jesus allowed himself to be captured and to be killed for us. Pain and suffering only makes sense, in my opinion, when we look at the cross. In the cross, that is the expression of solidarity. I'm in this with you together. When you can't see what you want to see and when you can't sense a whole lot of anything... Jesus stepped into our experience to say, I will do it with you, and I will do it for you. Jesus, um, and and, in Mark 15, um, we see these different expressions and cries from the cross as Jesus is bearing that anguish. It says this in Mark 15, verse 33, At noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shakbaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So something happened. Uh, We don't exactly know. um, Some people argue that there was a break in the divine connection. Others are really uncomfortable with any kind of break or separation in the Godhood. I think there is a mystery that we'll be exploring for all of eternity about the dynamics of the Trinity, what happened when Jesus went to the cross, and when he said, why did, why God, why Father, did you abandon me? What that means for the Trinity of the Godhead. But what I do know is that Jesus was actually quoting from Psalm 22. Good Jewish boys and, and girls would, would memorize tons of scripture, and good uh, Jewish rabbis would quote beginning lines of scripture, and their students and other uh, religious leaders would understand that he's referring to the entirety of this scripture. So in Psalm 22, it says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. So the religious leaders that were gathered there condemning Jesus 
we're hearing this and being clued in that there's a bigger story, a bigger narrative that's unfolding. Yes, there is an anguish. There is a cry. There is separation. There is supposed abandonment. They think they've won. They think they've put down uh, a rabble rouser. They have victory over this supposed Messiah. And Jesus is saying, when you think that God has abandoned me, there's something more that's going on. I do love, though, how Jesus is so relatable as he quotes this psalm. Uh, let's read on. He says, I am a worm. And, not a, and this is David who Jesus is quoting. I'm a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by everyone. Despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. We get that cry of anguish. We've felt this psalm in our inner being. We know, the, you know, even if we haven't known to say this psalm, this has been on our heart to express towards God. Why have you abandoned me in my greatest time of need? And yet, as David is writing these, what, what I love about the psalms is that he seems kind of like melodramatic, you know, mellow at sometimes, dramatic in others. The psalms represent a journey. Uh, and even one psalm can have highs and lows built into it. And, and this one is, is one of those such psalms where David starts out just with gut-wrenching anguish of feeling alone and distanced from God. And yet the psalm itself goes on a journey where he lands in a different place than where he starts. And I love that because that's my experience of a day. I get up in the morning. I don't want to be up. Coffee. Yay, God. Thankful for the day. Something happens. An email drops or I get some news or whatever. And it's like back like, God, where are you at? You know, updates on Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Like, yeah, that's super exciting and interesting. And then it's back, you know, whatever it is for you, we relate to this. And this is what David writes. He continues, he says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. In other words, David's saying, God is actually near. And what you could say is paying more attention to those who are afflicted. Those who are in need of comfort and are looking for God and crying out to God. God hears that. And God is drawn to that. So Jesus uses this psalm to, in a way, turn the tables and still instruct to his dying breath what is actually going on in God's plan of redemption. It starts by looking like God has abandoned Jesus. But in the end, what he's saying is he quotes this like a rabbi would. is that, no, 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 I'm going through the most to attain the victory. And God's eye is ever on me. I'm his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And he is still near me even if I can't sense him. The victory is already won. This hopeful note of Psalm 22 here is a declaration of faithfulness born from the fires of experiencing the lonely distancing of God. David has endured the hardship and emerged on the other side. Not the same. We never emerge from the dark night or this distance or this silence the same. He emerges different. 
He's been changed and formed by the journey he's been on. Only someone who goes through something like this has the authority to guide others. Those who have endured hardship are the ones we look to in trust and hope that our situations can be made sense of. If, if you've ever gone like whitewater rafting, your boat, your raft is assigned a guide. And that guide has been down the rushing river dozens, if not hundreds of times. He or she knows every nook and cranny of that river. They know when it gets fast. They know when it slows down. They know where to avoid the shallow spots, the rocky spots. They know. And we know absolutely none of us would get into a raft with a guide who has only written or read a book about rafting. There's no way your guide shows up you know, kind of pimply-faced, 20-year-old, squeaky-voiced guy. I, I listened to this great podcast with an influencer, and I'm excited to take you down the river. You, you would be like, I want my money back, and I want you to get away from me, right? Because that guide, the guide is called a guide for a reason. And we need guides in our lives. Not just people who are smart about stuff, but people that have been through the dark night of the soul, who, as Sarah mentioned it last week, has put God in a headlock and has the limp to show for it. We need people who, who can say to us, I think I know what you're going through, at least some of it, and it's okay, you're not crazy. We need guides, and I will tell you this, God is looking for guides. Our world is starving for guidance. There are all kinds of voices that will pull people towards what they promised as fulfillment and flourishing, and they're taking away, taking them away from God. We need to be a community of guides. I believe this is what God is inviting us into, to be a community of guides who, when all the other influencers are promising hacks and quick fixes, we have the limp to show that we've been there. We've gotten splashed by the river. We've fallen in a time or two. We've getting, gotten scratched by the rocks. But because we've been there, we can make sure others travel the voyage safely. Not to be the same on the other side, but to be changed and formed by it. And ultimately closer to God. Because at the end of the day, the one question that we're all trying to have answered is, is he worth it? That's what people really want to know. All this loss and all this grief, all the things that I have to give up, is Jesus really worth it? Because all kinds of voices are promising me all kinds of things that seem a lot better. But is God worth the cost? And unless you've been through it, and unless they can see it in your eyes, we have nothing to tell them. We have nothing to give them other than a Coldplay conference and a TED Talk. But I'm telling you, what you're going through right now is for a reason. And it's on purpose. I would never wish the dark night on anyone. But I also know it's unavoidable and necessary for God to get at what he wants to get at. To make us a people of love and to guide other people through it. And to assure them, this is all really worth it. Jesus is really worth it. So, let's take a minute 
and talk about how to embrace this season of silence. So whether you've been through it and you're trying to make sense of it, whether you're going through it right now and you're trying to assure yourself you're not crazy, or there's some of us that have probably never been through this, uh, I would just, in, in all humility that I can muster, honestly say that the Western church promises an avoidance of this season. And what we do is we actually keep people embedded in shallow spirituality. And we keep them from becoming guides to help other people. We promise comfort and ease. And so to actually lean into this and embrace this, it takes courage. It really does. It takes a, a resilience that doesn't just come from, you know, going to bed early, going to the gym every day. It really takes the grace of God. To, to keep saying yes to him. To keep believing that this is worth it, okay? So let's talk about, rather than avoiding God's silence, or even as we do in the American church, we cover over it with busyness a lot of times. Um, what actually practicing silence with God can lead us into. Uh, and I believe it leads us into strengthening and maturing our, our faith, okay? So four things, not exhaustive, not a checklist, but really just an invitation to make sense of it. Silence prepares us. Silence removes things that we're trusting in besides God. When we perceive God as silent, it grabs our attention and in this way helps us to begin to transition to what God is doing next in our life. We will need to slow down to press into God's presence which we may find more difficult and more elusive than ever. But don't panic. This is part of the normal preparation work. Okay? So silence prepares us. Silence also focuses us. Growing up, I don't know if you had this experience, but growing up riding in the car with your parents, did they ever, like, turn the radio down to concentrate? Like your dad was backing in to the spot at the hardware store. So he says, kids, be quiet. And he turns the radio down. Like, does that really help, do you think? Or your mom is trying to, like, find the, the, the spot in the, the grocery store or whatever, and she turns the radio. Does that open a spot up magically? It doesn't. But what it does is it removes distractions, and it focuses us on the task at hand. Being quiet, leaning into silent, silence does that. Paying attention to the silence of God causes us to be more receptive to him and what he's doing in that moment. So, like I've said a couple times, there are all kinds of competing voices in your life that are promising happiness and fulfillment, most of which will take your attention away from God and actual human flourishing. Silence helps train our attention back to the giver of life. Dallas Willard says this, Far from being a mere absence, silence allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your life. It is like the wind of eternity blowing in your face. Not for nothing does the psalmist say, Be still and know that I am God. God does not ordinarily compete for our attention. In silence, we come to attend. So silence focuses us. Thirdly, silence settles us. We have a tendency to spin up with anxious energy when things aren't going the way that we planned. We get busy to cover over the deeper issues of our soul, and God is very aware of how we cope. So his silence is often his mechanism to invite us to remove distractions and enter into a calmness. 
We get in touch with what's under the surface of our hearts. Our prayers, which are often, God, uh, give me this raise. Help me get this bonus. Often are transformed into, God, help my insecurity over money. Heal me of that. And reveal, um, reveal the ways that image management has taken hold in my soul. And I project a false self, and I need more money to keep that up. Our prayers go from, God, give me what I want to reveal and heal where I'm trusting in things over you. And then fourthly, silence deepens us. Silence is ultimately an invitation for deeper intimacy with God. But to experience this, this, many of us will need to work through the issues that silence surfaces. For some, God's silence may feel like neglect, and it triggers all kinds of responses. Something in us says that if God cared, he would do this differently. He would show up. He would speak and answer this prayer. Uh, Some of us were given the silent treatment growing up, or maybe even even in a relationship and marriage or something like that. We learned that silence is punishment. And God's silence is actually an invitation to heal whatever has traumatized us and to set that right. Yeah, people have used silence and distance as a way to manipulate. And God wants to get at that, and he wants to heal that so that you don't project that onto everybody and onto him. Silence also trains us to hear his voice in different ways. So Sarah and I talk to each other differently based on context. And that's only come over 15 years of a marriage together. We speak in different timbers and tones based on the size of the crowd, based on who else is there. We don't talk to each other the same way every time we talk to each other. Sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's a, uh, really, babe? Something like that, right? And I I get as well as I give uh, all of that. And we need that to flesh out holistically the intimacy in our relationship. You don't want us talking to each other at church the same way when it's just the two of us in our home. It's inappropriate to actually talk in certain timbers and tones in certain contexts. But you need time together where you develop that. And you need a social awareness. That's a whole other topic for another time. But some of us need help with that. But anyway, we talk to each other, our kids, our friends, our spouses. There's all different ways that our voices are conveyed and communicated. And it's the same with God. In the beginning, at least in my spiritual journey, God was loud. He spoke clearly over the the, the crowd and over the attention-seeking of, of other things promising me vitality. There were seasons where his voice got really quiet, and I thought it was gone. There were seasons where it was gone, and it made me hungry and desirous for his voice once again. I would take it any way he would want to communicate it. There are times where it's unmistakable that it's God speaking, either through Scripture or that internal voice that he speaks in through his Spirit. We need time to give our attention to how God is speaking so he can grow us up in our faith and he can holistically make us mature and strong, okay? So I would encourage you, um, I would encourage you to experiment with different ways of experiencing God's silence. 
Um, and, and maybe that's leaning into silence and, and cultivating that as your own practice. It could be, uh, this, is a, this is a huge TikTok trend right now, going on walks without your phone. Now, you know, the, the performative experience of social media is a whole other conversation where I did this thing, now I'm without my phone, and I'm going to post about it on my phone. You know, it's a whole thing. But this is like a, a revelation to people that I can have stillness and quietness if I walk around in my neighborhood with my phone put away or left at my home. People are realizing my mental health is a lot better when I do that for extended periods of time. It's like, yeah, Christianity has been telling you that for, you know, thousands of years, but we're welcome to the party. That's really great. So we actually need to practice the things we know how to do. It's going to give us space and, and solitude with God. So it could be walking around your block with your phone either at your house or put away out of arm's reach. It could be uh, getting up and reading through the Psalms. I, I sometimes like reading through the Psalms until I find a psalm that expresses the emotions I'm feeling in that moment. There's something, again, about the solidarity of like people have done this and felt this before. Uh, it could be just something as simple as a practice where you get up in the beginning of your day for 10 minutes before you ever pick a screen up or open a book and you spend 10 minutes in quiet, attentive to God. And that's it. Any of those, for most of us, would do a whole lot of good for our spirituality, for our mental, emotional health, and just holistic vitality, okay? So whatever it is, know that in our noisy, busy, anxious world that pushes us to certainty, quick answers, and quick fixes, I want you to know that God is with you, that God is for you, and the greatest expression of love was that Jesus came and experienced the pain that we all do. That's it. That's what I have for you today. Um, I'll leave you with this. This is a story, uh, Pete Gregg, in his book, God on Mute, which is a fantastic book about unanswered prayers and God's silence. He says this, A story is told of the Nobel Prize-winning Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn when he was imprisoned by Stalin in a Siberian gulag. One day, slaving away in sub-zero temperatures, he finally reached the end of his endurance. Discarding his shovel, he slumped onto a, a bench and waited for a guard to beat him to death. He'd seen it happen to others and was waiting for the first blow to fall. Before this could happen, an emaciated fellow prisoner approached Solzhenitsyn silently. Without a word of explanation, the prisoner scratched the sign of the cross in the mud and scurried away. As Solzhenitsyn stared at those two lines scratching in the dirt, the message of the cross began to converse with his sense of despair. In that moment, he knew that there was something greater than the Soviet Union. He knew that the hope of all mankind was represented in that simple cross. And through the power of the cross, anything was possible. Picking up his shovel, Alexander Solzhenitsyn slowly went back to work. Nothing but the message of God's suffering could have inspired Solzhenitsyn to return to work that day. Only the presence of God at Golgotha could imbue the gulag with fresh possibilities. More than just the comforting knowledge of divine empathy, great as that is, the cross rekindled in Solzhenitsyn the actual hope that everything was possible for God, even in a Siberian concentration camp where all the evidence suggested otherwise. In fact, especially in such a place. The Christian gospel is the story of a God who breaks the rules of plausibility, often when we least expect it and in ways we could have never predicted. I need a God whose promises are certain, 
a God who's been there before and can walk with me and counsel me and pray for me and prepare a place for me and who can even make all things work together for good. This, then, is the confession we cannot afford to compromise, even when it propels us into the realms of mystery and confusion. Our God is our Father, loves us completely, is all-powerful, and will ultimately make all things new. So with that, I want to invite the worship team and the communion servers up to join me. Uh, Why don't you stand with me as well? Um, After each message, we like to give you an invitation for a practice to actually put what we've talked about into practice. Here's a simple question I want you to ask. What invitation am I sensing to lean into silence and search out God? What could that be for you that God is inviting you to lean into his silence and experience it more fully? Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.